Well, I dearly love that last hymn, The Church is One Foundation. I do think it um, really captures um, the, the, the entirety of our life as Christians and uh, in this uh, life in Christ and as a church as we wait for his coming and we consider the grace that is already ours through the gospel and through union with Christ. It's a beautiful hymn. Uh, I dearly love it. Well, let me, um, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. That will be where we'll find our, our focus text, but we're really going to be looking at the, um, the major message of the book of Galatians with, a, with an eye to how it applies to the church as we continue this series that we began before uh, Christmas and before the new year, and now we're returning to as we continue to march through uh, the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches Here we come to Galatians chapter 2, and while you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. What kind of church will we be in the years to come? It's a question that's going to confront us that I'm going to challenge you with tonight as we consider our church and the character of our church. Now, I do think this question probably would have seemed a little bit strange to the Apostle Paul. If you said uh, something like, "What uh, what kind of church should we be? He might say, well, what kinds of churches are there? Uh, Nevertheless, in our day, it's a common phrase, a common kind of question that we might ask because there are so many different churches. We see that there are Protestants and there are Catholics, and within Protestants, uh, within Protestantism, there are Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists, and it goes on from there. And then uh, within each group, we can further uh, distinguish one denomination, one church, one group from another to the point where here in the 21st century, even churches try to so distinguish themselves as to make themselves unique among all churches, maybe with a catchy byline or a a catchy name. Paul, I don't think, would have recognized this desire. Certainly he would have recognized that that churches can be distinguished from another by by certain features, like their geography and their location. The The churches in Galatia were distinguished from the churches in Greece and Macedonia and to the West, because they were in Galatia. And they had natural linguistic differences and cultural differences. But those things are incidental. They're not essential to what makes the church the church. When it comes to that that which is essential to the church, Paul looked for uniformity. He looked for something that was uniting all the churches. And nothing was more foundational in this regard than the gospel itself. Paul understood the gospel that he preached, which he himself received from the Lord, not from men, as the essential foundation of a church. When we think about what we ought to be as a church, we ought to answer that question with reference then to this essential foundation. The gospel message is the foundation of our life together. It's what has been proclaimed for 2,000 years in the churches of Christ and will be proclaimed to His coming. It's at the root, it's at the foundation of our life. And so if Paul, for, in a manner of speaking, would adopt the way that we tend to speak, he would probably say to us, I hope no matter what, that you will be a church that is about the gospel. And as we see, we'll see tonight, that's what he called the churches in Galatia to be, to renew their commitment to the one gospel that they had received at first, to which they were, from which they were departing. So if you found your place in Galatians 2, Would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 15, and I will read to verse 20. 
Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Father in heaven, we come to your word tonight and we ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds to make us a people who receive your words by once again renewing our commitment to be a people that are united around the gospel, the good news that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. May it be now and forevermore him that we proclaim, the grace that we have through him. Uh, may that be what we trust in. May we always and forever seek to be righteous before you, not by our own works and not by works of the law, but by that only righteousness that can truly save, the righteousness that comes through faith in him. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said in the introduction, that uh, the gospel is foundational to our life together as a church. It ought to be foundational to our life. It has been foundational to true churches since the very beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. And yet, from that very beginning, by the same token, it has always come under attack in different ways. The attacks today differ in some ways from those which the earliest church faced, and yet they share certain things in common. Therefore, it's going to help us to consider what was one of the greatest challenges to the gospel in Paul's day here in the middle of the first century. That problem, in a word, was circumcision. When God called Abraham, as we read in Genesis chapter 17, he gave him a covenant. He made a covenant with him. And in that covenant, he called Abraham to perform this rite of circumcision. We read in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 11. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You look at that language, or you hear it, and you, you hear language like every generation, all of your offspring throughout their generations, and you conclude, perhaps, then, that circumcision is a requirement for the people of God. And as we understand from the New Testament, we come into this new community whereby we become children of Abraham, not biologically, but by faith. So doesn't it stand to reason on the basis of Genesis 17 that this is a requirement for Christians? 
Certainly in the law, God commanded again his people to perform this rite. We can see that in Leviticus chapter 12, where he commanded that the Israelites were to circumcise their sons on the eighth day of their life. Every son. And if they did not do this, that child was to be cut off from the people, excluded from the covenant people of God. Also we see in Exodus chapter 12, that there was allowance made. If someone who was not an Israelite wanted to become an Israelite in his practice, if he wanted to keep the Passover, for instance, maybe he was a sojourner in the land, a, a, a refugee or a migrant, or maybe he was, had become a slave of an Israelite, he was free to do that, but it, uh, the, if he was a male, he had to be circumcised first in order to come into the covenant people. And so naturally, many in the church, in the early church, concluded that this continued to be a valid requirement for the people of God. Now the law also taught that there was a more necessary circumcision that was required. One that, it's figurative in nature, this language. It's not something that you can actually perform. It's something that only God can do, but it's called the circumcision of the heart. Moses spoke about this in Deuteronomy 10 and in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And Jeremiah likewise prophesied about it. Other prophets spoke similarly in different ways about what God would ultimately do when he would give his people this kind of circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. Nevertheless, the question, the problem that attended in the early church was not about that second issue, those, these things we'll see are related, but it was about that first issue. We can state it simply. Do new Christians who were Gentiles, particularly Christian males, must they be circumcised in order to enter into the church? In the past, the requirement had, uh, had caused many God-fearing uh, Gentiles not to fully join themselves to the people of Israel. And it continued to present a great difficulty to new believers who were coming in from among the Gentiles. Now, this problem is difficult for a number of reasons, but most notably because Jesus does not give some kind of clear instruction where he says, yes, you must keep doing this, or no, you need not continue to do this. You won't find that in the Gospels. He taught explicitly on other matters. For example, Mark 7, verse 20, tells us that Jesus, uh, that Jesus explicitly repealed the food laws. And in Acts chapter 10, we see in Peter's vision that after his resurrection and ascension, that Jesus communicated with Peter in a vision the same idea, that the food laws were no longer applicable because he had made what was unclean to be clean. But he did not speak in the same explicit manner concerning this issue of circumcision. So how would the early church solve that problem? How did the apostles reason through this issue? What they did was they considered the clear testimony that Christ had given them, not in direct words, but in a direct act. In Acts chapter 10, we can read about the conversion of Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was a Gentile man, a God-fearing man, but he had not become an Israelite. He was not a proselyte is the term. He had not come into the people of Israel, and this was the reason. He remained uncircumcised. And yet, God sent Peter to Cornelius to declare the gospel to him and his household. And when he did, they received the gospel with faith. The Holy Spirit filled them, and God made it manifest to Peter that the Holy Spirit had filled them because they spoke in tongues. Not that every Christian speaks in tongues when he receives the Holy Spirit. Not then, and certainly not now. But this was a necessary sign by which God demonstrated quite clearly and conclusively to Peter that Cornelius and his household had, in fact, received the Holy Spirit. Well, why does that matter? Because 
When Peter saw this, he said, how can I, how can we withhold water for baptism from those whom God has clearly baptized with the Spirit? How can I stand in the way of God, was Peter's reasoning. And so he recognized that these people had been saved because the Spirit had filled them. Now the church would later reason in the very same way. When Peter returned to Jerusalem, some who are from this group that we call the circumcision party, that's what Luke calls them in Acts 11, they challenged Peter for visiting uncircumcised men and eating with them. Their view was that you should not associate with people like that. But Peter explained what had happened, and he argued, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Thus these early believers came to understand that the gospel had gone forth to uncircumcised Gentiles and they glorified God. But that was not the end of the issue. The issue of circumcision did not go away with that because in Acts 15 verse 1 we read that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved. This took place in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were so they went back to Jerusalem. They put the issue before Peter and the other apostles. And they reasoned, remembering what God had done in the life of Cornelius through Peter, they reasoned on that basis and on the basis of other passages from Scripture that if God had given the Spirit already to uncircumcised Gentiles, then clearly it wasn't necessary for them to be circumcised. And so they did not put this requirement on Gentiles who were coming into the church they simply asked them to, uh, to avoid certain taboos like e- eating food with blood and um, uh, sac- food sacrificed to idols. God had communicated his judgment on the matter through the apostles as they interpreted and understood the implications of God's work. The gift of the Holy Spirit was the key defining aspect of that work, that God had given the Spirit to people who were circumcised and people who were uncircumcised showed conclusively that for God there was no distinction. And so that requirement under the old covenant to circumcise people who were part of the covenant community of God no longer applied under the new covenant. Still, the problem and the controversy did not go away. And that's what we see in Paul's letter to the Galatians. For his part, he supported the conclusion of the apostles. He rejoiced to hear it. Now, it's true that Paul at one point found it expedient to circumcise Timothy, for instance. We read that in Acts 16.3. But in that case, his focus was on Jews who had not yet come to faith in Christ, and he did not want to put a stumbling block and a fence in front of them as he presented the gospel to them. But with regard to Titus, he'll say in Galatians 2, verse 3, that as he went back to Jerusalem to to settle the matter with the apostles in this regard, Titus was not compelled, as a Gentile, he was not compelled to receive circumcision. Why? Because there Paul was addressing people who already were believers who ought to understand justification by faith and the grace that is offered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The difference was in the audience. With respect to the unbelieving Jews, Paul hoped to win them to Christ, and so he avoided the stumbling block. But with respect to those who were believers... Paul did not want the issue to undermine the gospel. Therefore, when some began to teach that circumcision was necessary for salvation, Paul put his foot down. 
because that teaching undermined the good news which Paul was called by God to proclaim. That's what Galatians is all about. Now Galatia is a region in, in, in what's modern Turkey, in central, the central part of modern Turkey. And the churches there were planted earlier than the churches in Macedonia and Greece. Planted earlier than Thessal uh, the church in Thessalonica and, and, uh, and uh, Corinth and, and, uh, and so on. And they had come under the influence of some from this circumcision party. We can see that and discern that throughout this letter to the Galatians. Luke wrote about them in Acts. We heard about that. And apparently these individuals were gaining a following there in Galatia. As they taught that you have to add this to your faith, supplement your faith with this sign, with this work, in order to be saved. And it's understandable, as we've seen, given what we observed from the law, that some might think in this way. Could not a person counter Paul, after all, and say that his so-called gospel undermined the word of God, what God clearly spoke to, uh, to Abraham and to Moses, and we know that God's word endures forever. Well, the answer to that question involves some difficult interpretive questions, but the short answer is no, and to borrow Paul's language, the gospel does not nullify the word of God. As Acts showed us, however difficult the interpretive questions may be, the clear, definitive answer is in the gift of the Holy Spirit and the fact that God did not withhold the Spirit but rather gave the Spirit to those who had not received circumcision. He therefore declared definitively that under the new covenant it is not required. It is not something that we must add somehow to our faith in order to be right with God. And that's the problem then in Galatia is that people are teaching otherwise. People are contradicting what Paul is teaching he teaches in a way that's consistent with the other apostles. He makes that case in this letter. It's consistent with what Peter understood and what Peter taught, not always with the way Peter lived. You, you'll see, you can see that in Galatians if you read it on your own, how Paul would actually confront Peter at one point because though he believed the same as Paul, his actions were out of step with his belief and he acted hypocritically in certain cases. So, so it fell to Paul to confront him. Nevertheless, what Paul proclaimed, Paul will defend his, his credibility. We're not going to deal so much with that tonight. Paul defends his credibility throughout this letter. It seems that these false teachers were trying to undermine his credibility, perhaps, and that's why he felt compelled to explain why he was to be trusted, why his gospel was not a gospel that he received from men, but it was the gospel that he received from God, and why it's the only gospel, the only good news. But here what we want to do is put our focus on the, the Galatians and how Paul regards this church. And the first thing that we will notice as he holds forth to them this truth that there is only one gospel is that he is astonished, he is perplexed by the fact that they are being tempted to abandon it because of these false teachers. Look at chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 6 and following. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul called their preaching a different gospel, and then he clarified that there is not really another gospel. It's really no good news at all. 
For the Galatians to accept the teaching of the circumcision party was akin to abandoning the God who had called them through the grace of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly, not forgetting the gospel, so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, you see, that ultimately in the turning to a different gospel, what they're doing is deserting the one who has called them. Now, Paul was perplexed and he'll express that idea later in the letter again. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, he'll address them as foolish Galatians and ask rhetorically, who has bewitched you? In Galatians 4.20, he'll say, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Clearly, Paul was deeply concerned by these developments. Why such concern? Because the Galatians were in danger of falling away from Christ altogether, and Paul dearly longed to see them return to the one gospel they had received. You see, in our context, in our time, we might expect a church like the Galatians to say, you know what, we're just going to put up a new sign in front of the church, and we're going to have a new byline, and it's going to say, we're the kinds of Christians that keep every single word in the Bible. That's the kind of Christians that we are, right? And distinguish themselves from other Christians just like we have today. You have Christians who distinguish themselves because they gather and keep Sabbath on Saturday. Distinguishing themselves from the regular practice of churches for 2,000 years of gathering and, uh, and, uh, and resting on Sunday, you see. And we do this kind of thing. For Paul, that's not an acceptable, uh, it's not, a, it's not an acceptable uh, compromise. It's not something that he's willing to allow. Paul, in other points in his life, and other points in his ministry, demonstrated that he could agree to disagree with people, even when the disagreements were very serious. For example, we see in the end of Acts chapter 15 that he and Barnabas would separate in the course of their ministry because they had a substantial disagreement about how to carry forward that ministry. But it's not because Paul regarded Barnabas as a false teacher or not a Christian. It's but they just couldn't work together on that matter and that issue. But on this issue... Paul is not willing to have compromise. He's not willing just to separate and and to let bygones be bygones and to agree to disagree. Why? Because what he's arguing is that those people who call themselves believers, who teach this, are not really in Christ. And those who follow follow them are falling away from Christ, are abandoning the gospel that they received at first, and so abandoning Christ himself. Such a church would not be a church, for such a gathering would not have as its essential foundation the essential foundation of every true church. There is but one gospel, and there is one kind of church, a church that is founded on that one gospel. Anyone who would preach something contrary to this gospel is to be accursed. But what is that gospel? How would Paul define it? It's simple enough to be stated in a few lines. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember these words from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Now that doesn't mean, just because we can express it that simply, and Paul has, doesn't mean it is so simplistic that it can only be expressed in simple formulas. Just from hearing or reading that, the, those two verses in 1 Corinthians, it would be hard to see 
how there's a contradiction between what the circumcision party is saying and that gospel that Paul preached. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 was not concerned with that issue, but with another issue, mainly, namely the denial of resurrection. Here Paul is concerned with uh, the issue of, um, of works-based righteousness, righteousness that comes through doing something that is based on a law. And so the gospel in this context will be expressed in a different way. And as we see it expressed in a different way, what we do start to see is that though we can express it simply, it's also so profound that it can occupy our deepest meditations for all of our life. It's simple enough to be understood by a child, but rich enough to be studied by the most seasoned scholar because it concerns what the infinite God has done to save us sinners. The triune God sent his son in our likeness to die for our sins. He completely and fully paid our debt when he died on the cross. And he rose from the grave, guaranteeing eternal life to all who believe in him. These simple statements represent profound truths that can be probed in many volumes without ever exhausting their truths. Of course, that reality means that we need to continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel. And therein lies one of the challenges for the believer. For someone can easily come along claiming that he is adding to our understanding of the gospel and God's purposes when in reality he's distorting it by adding to it, by subtracting from it, by substituting something else in its place, or by simply ignoring it altogether. The question then comes to us, how can we recognize when this is happening? How can we recognize a departure from the gospel? It would be helpful to look at how Paul recognizes a departure from the gospel in the life of the Galatians. And here we come to that focused text again in Galatians 2, 15 through 20. Paul here helps us by giving us a clear account of the gospel so that we are able to distinguish it from this particular false gospel. In this text, it's what Matthew Harmon and John Sloat have called the thesis of the central portion of Paul's letter. Paul defines the one gospel which was held and has been held and is today held by all true churches. When he says that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He shines a spotlight on this truth, justification by faith, that we are justified by faith, through faith, by God's grace, freely as a gift, not by works of the law. Because Christ died for us in our place on the cross. Anything that would subtract from that or add to it or distort it in any way is not a gospel at all. Now as we look in this text and look more closely at it, I want you to observe the many contrasts that Paul generates. He's continuing in some sense his uh, confrontation with Peter that I spoke about earlier. You can see that in verse 11 down to... Uh, verse 14, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
And so you can see that what Paul, what you'll see what Paul's about to say in verse 15 naturally continues from what we just heard of his account of that confrontation that he had with Peter. He'll go on to say, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And we see the first contrast that he creates here. He's speaking of himself. He's speaking of Peter. He's speaking of the other Jews. And he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. In other words, if anyone has a claim to be righteous by way of the law before God, we do. If anyone is free to not really be worried about this issue of circumcision, we are free. We've got all of our ducks in a row. And here, when he says we're not Gentile sinners, he's probably adopting the language of the circumcision party rhetorically. He'll come back to this idea, referencing sinners. But then we have this another, another turn, another contrast. After he says we're not Gentile sinners, he says, yet we know. that Paul's going to say we have knowledge. We know something that makes that statement irrelevant. Here's what we know. That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the next contrast. Justification, that is, to be declared righteous before God. For God to look at you and say, I count you as righteous before me. I count you as someone who is righteous and so able to enter into my presence forever. For God to say that to you depends not on works of the law. It can't come through works of the law. It can't come through anything that you do in your strength or in your power. Not a combination of these two. Paul doesn't say, yet we know that a person is justified by a combination of works of the law and faith in Christ. He doesn't say that a person is justified by faith as long as they add the right degree of uh, works of the law or uh, uh, the right kinds of works of the law. He says, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This we know. Paul knew it. Peter knew it, and those who were with Peter knew it. But they weren't living like it. Out of the fear of man, they were living a different way. And yet, they had made their decision. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 16. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. We ourselves are Jews by birth, but we're not relying on that. We also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order, to, here's the purpose, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. He repeats that contrast between faith and works. Why are they seeking to be justified by faith and not by works? Here's the answer. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not Paul, whose resume was blameless, he'll say in Philippians chapter 3, with regard to the law. Not Peter, not anyone will be justified by works of the law. Why? Because the law requires perfection. And no one can meet that standard. No one has save our Lord Jesus Christ. The law requires perfection. And if you don't meet that requirement of perfection, the law pronounces a curse upon you. You won't be justified by works of the law. Because you cannot be perfect in that way. And what the circumcision party is missing is this key point. If they want to go back to this way of living, if they think that faith in Christ is just about entering into the covenant community, but once you're in, now you've got to go back to this old way where you keep yourself in that community by your law-keeping. If that's what they're thinking, they're wrong because their justification from first to last throughout their entire life 
is always and ever will be predicated upon their faith in Jesus Christ through whom they are justified. It's his righteousness, not any that they can achieve on their own. Now rhetorically in verse 17, Paul, after having made this point, which is agreed upon, it's something that they all know, he's going to rhetorically explore the possibility that nevertheless, in spite of all that, for them to associate with Gentiles, for them to gather with them, is sin. He's going to consider that idea and what it would mean logically. Remember in chapter 11 of Acts, how when Peter came back from Cornelius, that was the charge of the circumcision party. They charged that Peter was wrong, that he was sinning, because he was eating with Gentiles. He was gathering with the uncircumcised. So what does Paul say in verse 17? But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, here when he says, our endeavor to be justified in Christ, it's a long way of saying what I just said. If in doing what, what I just said we've done, namely believing in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, the unspoken part is sinners by association with Gentiles, is Christ then a servant of sin? And we remember that it was, Peter, it, was, it was Christ through the Spirit who sent Peter to Cornelius. And it was Christ who called Paul and set Paul apart to go to the Gentiles. And if what they're doing in going to the Gentiles and, and eating with them and, and, and congregating with them is wrong, and it was Christ who commanded them to do it, then that would mean Christ is a servant of sin. Paul's not even going to dignify that with a logical rebuttal. He just says, certainly not. You know, if we were to put that in our, in our modern way of speaking, you'd say, no way. No way. Christ is not a servant of sin. And the point that he, he's making the argument to its logical end and showing that the logical end of the argument is absurd. Those who are alleging that Paul and Peter and others are sinning in their association with Gentiles are, they don't realize it, but what they're alleging is that Christ is a certain servant of sin. Now, why is this wrong? Why, why is this logic wrong? Here's what Paul says. If I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. What does he mean there? If I rebuild that, the law, meaning I tore down the law, I, I, I said no longer are, am I going to seek to be justified by way of the law, and no longer am I going to proclaim to people that they, ought to be, they seek to be justified by way of the law. Paul used to live that way. As a Pharisee, he was more zealous than anyone. He had the best resume of any, any Jew ever, we might say. And yet he tore it down. But if he rebuilds that, then he actually does become a transgressor of the new covenant. He's become a transgressor of the new covenant by rejecting what God has given us in the new covenant, namely the righteousness that comes apart from the law, but through faith in Christ. And here he gives some reasons for that claim then. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And you might sit there and, and hear that and scratch your head and say, well, what does Paul mean? Through the law I died to the law. Well, Paul hasn't died. Well, in our context, in our perspective he has, but back then he's writing. He hasn't died. Well, Paul's going to explain what he means in verse 20. When he says, through the law I died, remember that the law pronounces a curse on the person who does not keep it. Paul will explain that in Galatians chapter 3. Cursed is anyone who does not keep everything that is in the law commanded. 
He says, through the law, I died to the law. So the law commands that curse that, which re that requires death. And then in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, he'll make the point that Christ, in going to the cross, because the law says, cursed is anyone who was hanged upon a tree, took upon himself the curse that was properly ours. He became a curse for us so that we would not need to bear the curse of the law. And here Paul relies on the truth that he preached in every church that through faith, as the Spirit of God causes us to be born again, something else crucial in the Christian life that he does is he unites us to Christ. What does that mean? Is it something you feel? It's not something you feel. It's something you know because the Bible says it's so. But it's something that's true. It's true. We are united with Christ. And what it means to be united with Christ is, in part, is to share in his death and his resurrection. So that when we see Paul and read Paul speaking of Christ's death as though it was his death and Christ's resurrection as though it were his resurrection, he's speaking about the fact that he has been united with Christ, as have all Christians. So he has really died in that spiritual sense, though he continues to live on in the flesh in the physical sense, as we all do. We really have died, and we really have been raised to this new life with Christ. We've been caused to be born again, and that came through this renewal of life that we call regeneration, the new birth, or what we receive in union with Christ in his death and resurrection, so that all of the saving benefits of that death and resurrection accrue to us. So Paul can say, through the law, I died to the law. And we can say it too. Why? Because we have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live. We don't live anymore in, that, in the sense that we are not the ones who control our lives and, and, and rule our lives. But now it's Christ who lives in us through the Spirit of God who He's made to dwell within us. So we have come to experience really, truly, new life. Paul explains in Romans more elaborately, he elaborates on this idea, explaining to us why this matters with respect to the law. Why does our union with Christ and his death and resurrection matter? And the answer, it's analogous to marriage. The marriage covenant lasts for a certain time. It lasts as long as you both shall live. You know that phraseology from if you've been married or you've been to a wedding. Till death do us part as long as you both shall live. But when one of the partners dies, the covenant no longer is in effect, and the other is free to be married again. What Paul will argue in Romans chapter 6 is that through our union with Christ and his death, we have died. And so our covenant obligation to the law is nullified. It's over. With our death with Christ and with our new life, we are now free to be in covenant in this new covenant which Christ has inaugurated in his coming, which we celebrated this morning at the Lord's Supper. Because we have been united, as Paul speaks of himself, so it's true of us. We've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live, if I can adjust that pronoun to the plural, the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. We don't live, here's the contrast, that's not spoken. We don't live by works of the law. 
We don't live by trusting in our own ability to carry out the works of the law of Moses. We live it by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved us and he gave himself for us. That's the gospel applied to this problem in Galatia. They were being tempted to depart from that gospel and go to their destruction because people were convincing and they were putting the word of God before it them and twisting the word of God and not rightly interpreting it, not rightly dividing it, not rightly understanding it in light of what God was clearly doing in their midst. And so they were leading people to their destruction. And Paul, in his perplexity and in his anguish and his wonder, was pleading with them, don't do it. Come back to the one gospel. It is our only foundation. And so it is for every true church. We must be found in this gospel, this gospel that proclaims that our only righteousness, our only justification before our Lord does not come from within, but it comes from without. It's Christ's righteousness credited to our account through faith and faith alone. That's what Paul preached to the Galatians. It's the only gospel. Any proposal that would lead to compromise that would introduce something in addition to that or subtract from it was a non-starter proposal for Paul. Anything like it should be a non-starter for us as a church for it would be a departure from our essential foundation and nothing can stand if it does not have a solid foundation. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that is what we must stand upon as a church. Now, as we consider this gospel in our life together as a church, and we think back to the question, what kind of church will we be? Let us resolve to be a church that is founded upon this gospel. And I don't mean that now we can make that a snappy tagline, but I do mean that we should be known for our commitment to the one true gospel, for there is no other one. How can we do that? What will it look like? Am I simply calling us to be more diligent evangelists? No. For the gospel, as I've suggested, is not just a message that we hear and believe at the outset of our faith. It is the truth that guides us in every way in the Christian life. To be sure, we should be about the work of evangelism. And that ought to be a focus in the life of a gospel church. I pray that we will grow in this as a church in the years to come. And I rejoice that I've seen many of you bear witness to the ways in which you've been given opportunity by Christ, by our Lord to bear witness concerning this gospel. But the gospel is about much more than how we come into the Christian life. Let me give you examples of that from Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Paul asks the Galatians this question. Recall that at the outset of the Christian life, the unique feature, the distinguishing mark that is always seen in the book of Acts is that the Spirit is given. When people come to Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of the Christian life. And look what Paul says in Galatians 3, 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obvious. The answer it doesn't require an answer. They know they, they received it not by works of the law, him not by works of the law. They received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Now verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Do you see what Paul is saying? He's applying the gospel to our life in Christ, to our growing sanctification, to the work of perfecting us that God is doing as in an ongoing way in our lives. That doesn't come by our own disciplined efforts through the law. When our entrance into the community of faith comes by faith. The whole thing is, is, is something that comes through the work of the Spirit in us. In other words, it's God's grace in our lives. And what is the gospel but a proclamation of God's grace in our lives? God's grace from first to last. That he unites us with Christ and that he conforms us into the image of Christ. And he's doing this by degrees. And so Paul can say later in Galatians as he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that familiar passage to us all. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he enumerates the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We must not lose sight of the very fact that these things are the fruit of the Spirit. They're not the fruit of the law. They're not the fruit of your diligence. They're not the fruit of your resolve and your strength and your strong wills. It's the grace of the Lord in our lives as the Spirit works just as he began to work in us when we heard the gospel and received it with faith. So, the gospel applies to our lives as Christians from first to last, and therefore it is an appropriate foundation for our life as a church from first to last. So how can we avoid the temptation of departing it? Well, let me come back to a few things I said earlier. That in the Galatian church, just as today, Though we don't really deal very much with this issue relating to circumcision, we do deal with the same sorts of problems. People would add to the gospel. They would subtract from the gospel. They would substitute something else for the gospel. Or they'll ignore the gospel. We add to the gospel when we take the doctrine of justification by faith, for example, and we seek to add something to it, just like in the Galatian church. This was the uh, the, the, the concern of the Protestant reformers in the 1500s, that the Catholic Church had come to teach that one is justified by faith in addition to the works that you could do, whether it was uh, giving money in certain ways to the church or whether it was performing certain sacraments. They required you to do something on top of your faith in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't enough to be justified by faith. That's what... The Protestant Reformation was about, by and large, rejecting that teaching and saying, no, Scripture teaches very clearly we are justified by faith and faith alone apart from works of the law. And in our day, we can add all sorts of things to the gospel in this same way. When we say a true Christian would not do X, Y, or Z, and we present it in a certain way where we make that thing a necessary qualification that's true that Christians don't do certain things, but not as a way of earning our salvation, but as a, uh, a result of God's work in our lives. But when we start to make that a qualification for what it means to be a Christian, we're starting to distort the gospel by adding something to it. And this can happen if we become so overly concerned with, with for example, current events and the current controversies of the day that we start to add those things to what it means to be a true Christian. We can also subtract from the gospel when we say that faith is not enough or when we deny aspects of what Christ accomplished for our sin. If we deny that Christ atoned for our sins in the cross or we somehow, as many people do, take issue with the idea that Christ really bore a penalty 
that he really bore the wrath of God as if it makes God seem to mean. That's a very common way in which people subtract from the gospel in our day. But that's not what scripture teaches. It teaches very clearly and very plainly that when Christ died on the cross, he died for our sins as an atoning sacrifice, absorbing the righteous wrath of God. And it's not because God is so mean, it's because we're so bad and our sin is so great and God is so holy and yet he's so gracious and loving that he made a way for us to be united with him and restored into fellowship with our maker. We ought not to subtract from the gospel in ways like that. We also need to avoid substituting something for the gospel. And this happened, for instance, in the 20th century with the social gospel, where many Christian denominations lost sight of the gospel because they became so concerned with social issues in the day that they said that the hallmark of being a Christian is loving your neighbor. And that's, to some extent, there's a kernel of truth in that. Love God and love your neighbor. That sums up what God requires of his people. And yet they turned Christianity into essentially running soup kitchens in some denominations. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you take one thing that's good, but you substitute it for the gospel, and you lose the gospel altogether. So you've lost your foundation. And a fourth way I think that probably threatens us or threatens any group more than any of those others is the possibility of ignoring the gospel. I think this happens when we start to think of the gospel as just the initiation. But after you come into the community of faith, now it's about getting life down so you know what you can do and what you can't do and what's a sin and what's not a sin so you know how to organize your life in a particular way according to the laws. Or it becomes about theology in a, in a deep, uh, 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 vague sense where we talk about deep ideas in terms that nobody understands and uh, we think that somehow that's, has, that has nothing to do with the gospel. We then confuse what's primary and what's most important in our life. D.A. Carson, in a book that he wrote some years ago called Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church, shared an anecdote about a particular uh, group of Christians where um, from one generation to another they lost sight of the gospel because the first generation assumed the gospel to be true, but they never really talked about it. Uh, and, and it wasn't an emphasis in their lives. And the, the second generation, they, they, they did have some knowledge of it, but they moved into other things thinking that other things were much more important because what do you know? They never talked about the gospel. It must not be important. And by the time you reach the third generation within that community, uh, they were outright denying the gospel. They'd forgotten the gospel because they ignored the gospel. They ignored that which is the foundation of our life in Christ. How can we resist those challenges? By regarding the gospel as our primary charge as a church. That starts with conversion. As I've said, we evangelize the lost, not by affirming them in their sin and unbelief, nor by initiating them in a rigorous and austere ethic, nor by pressuring them to receive a meaningless baptism, but by proclaiming the death of Christ for our sins and the re his resurrection for our life independence upon the grace of God given by the Spirit of God. Then we may baptize them with a baptism that has meaning. But we don't evangelize them in something that offers something less than the gospel, but rather the full and unadulterated gospel proclaimed and shared so that people might come to faith in Christ, not through our power and our great speech, but through the work of the Spirit in their lives. Second, 
We commit ourselves to holiness, not through law, but through the grace that is offered us in Christ, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. A church that is founded upon the gospel seeks holiness, not through rules and laws, but through the means of grace, the things that he's given us, like the preaching and teaching of the word, the hearing and reading of the word, the singing of hymns and songs, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. These means and instruments that God has given us of grace, but we don't do it depending upon the means, but upon the one who wields those tools and instruments. It depends upon the grace of God as he works in us through the Spirit of God. That will evidence a commitment to the gospel as our foundation. And finally, as a congregation, we demonstrate our commitment to the gospel by guarding the gospel. A church that is founded upon the gospel preserves the gospel, not through manipulation, nor through power of politics, but through the exercise of, and this is key, congregational authority to insist that all church teaching must remain in step with the message of the gospel. Paul called the Galatians to deal severely with the false teacher. He called the church to enforce the gospel in their teaching, in their preaching, in their life together. And so it is for us. As Paul said, if I or an angel from heaven, and I will say the same thing, if I or an angel from heaven ever preaches to you a gospel other than the gospel that you've received from the word of God, let me be accursed. Let me be fired too. But you have that charge. We together corporately have this charge to guard the gospel. For it is our foundation. We must keep in step with this message if we are to persevere faithful to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us clear words in Scripture to call us to renew our focus upon that which is primary in our lives, namely what you have done for us in Christ. There are many things that are important. There are many truths in your word that we must proclaim and we wish to proclaim, which are a delight to us. But above all else, let us never lose sight of this one truth. Let us adorn it with all the truth that your word contains, but never in a way that contradicts this one truth, this gospel that you have given us, knowing that you have given us a consistent word. Help us, Lord, to understand it and its consistency. May we be a people who ever and always, until you take us or our Lord comes, may we be people who are committed to the gospel as our foundation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.